by popular demand. It's another science fiction podcast from Third Flatiron Publishing in Boulder, Colorado. Today we're presenting the short story Spooky Action by David A. Kilman. A university physicist accidentally contacts God while conducting experiments in quantum entanglement, a.k.a. spooky action at a distance. This is the first that God has heard of humans, and he soon learns that some of them are not happy with his creation. Dave lives in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and has published work in Galaxy's Edge and Amazing Stories magazines. A humor writer and reviewer, he cites authors such as Kurt Vonnegut, Mark Twain, and Douglas Adams as his inspirations. Please see the accompanying interview to learn more. Our thanks to Dave for this satirical story, which first appeared in the Third Flatiron Anthology, Cat's Breakfast, a Kurt Vonnegut tribute. For more from Third Flatiron, check out our website at thirdflatiron.com and subscribe to our podcasts. And now, here's Spooky Action, read by Keely Rue. Spooky Action, by David A. Kilman. The end is near. Very near. Maybe this afternoon. And all the suffering in the universe will cease. I know this, because God told me himself. He left a message on my lab computer at Central Colorado State University, in a voice with a thick Brooklyn accent, one that, if you didn't know any better, you might think of as belonging to someone in the Teamsters Union. It was the voice of Richard Feynman. Richard Feynman was a Nobel Prize-winning theoretical physicist, one of the preeminent scientific minds of the 20th century. Feynman didn't believe in God. Until about two months ago, God didn't believe in Richard Feynman, either. I, too, am a physicist, though of much less distinction. Until two months ago, God had me right up there with Feynman, no such animal. But it wasn't that God had something specifically against physicists. He didn't believe in any humans. He'd never seen one, or heard one, or smelt one for that matter. There was no reason for him to suspect that anything like a human had grown in one of his universes, and so he was quite surprised to find one attempting to communicate with him. Imagine, if you will, putting leftover lasagna in your refrigerator, forgetting about it for a few months, and then one day while retrieving a beer, a small voice calls out to you from behind the lunch meats. It was something like that for God when he found out that physicists and janitors and circus performers and all manner of odd bipedal creatures were crawling around in his lasagna. Gabriela Josefina Hernandez believed in God, and that was even before the moon shot off into space, as if it had suddenly remembered that it had important business to attend to in the Andromeda galaxy. The first time she came into the lab at the beginning of the semester, she carried a wicker picnic basket on her left arm, and she said, Thank God for all these science machines. They come from government grants, I responded, not bothering to get up from the chair at my desk. God's gifts come in many ways. I wasn't in a particularly open mood for nonsense that morning. My entangled subatomic particles were acting as if they were not entangled at all like they had gotten a divorce and no longer wanted anything to do with each other. 
Is there something I can do for you? I asked, hoping she would go away. No, I just wanted to thank you for teaching my son. He didn't look old enough to have a son in college, but I kept that to myself. At the time, I was still hoping to get tenure. She was perhaps five foot three, of medium but well-rounded build, with olive skin and long, dark brown hair. I would have guessed her to be in her late twenties. You're welcome, I said. What do you do in here? she asked. I'm conducting experiments in quantum entanglement. Que? When two tiny particles become entangled, they seem to be able to tell what the other particle is doing, even when they are very far apart. Some call it spooky action at a distance. I'm trying to use that to send messages. Ah, like me and my twin sister. Whenever something bad happened to her, I was able to tell right away, even though she was in Venezuela. Is that so? Well, what is she doing right now? I thought I was being clever. She is dead. Oh. She opened the picnic basket and produced a plate with a red and white checkered cloth napkin concealing a mound beneath. I made you mandocas. She put the plate on my desk. I used the tip of my pen to lift the edge of the napkin, revealing several confections topped with shredded cheese. They looked like donuts, only horseshoe-shaped, with ends bent together to the point of touching. It's cornmeal, deep-fried. I don't think this would be appropriate. I removed my pen. I could make you cachapas instead. I'll bring them every morning. I tried to explain that I was being paid to teach her son, and that such gifts were not only unnecessary, but inappropriate, particularly on a daily basis. But she insisted. How can it be inappropriate to give thanks? Two months later, this morning, as I watched the physics building burn to the ground, Gabriella approached with her customary picnic basket. She had been bringing me mendocas every school day since the semester started, as promised. Though I had resisted at first, her persistence and, to be frank, the delectable nature of the confections had won me over. I was standing in the grass on the quad, a safe distance from the blaze helplessly watching firefighters losing the battle to save the building. A crowd of hundreds of students had gathered to gawk at the spectacle. Gabriella offered her condolences on the loss of the laboratory. I explained that the situation was much worse than losing the lab. God is about to put an end to the universe. She said that she knew that already. The prophets had been predicting it for a long time. The first thing to know about talking to God is that there is one doozy of a language barrier. Untold billions of people have been trying to talk to him for thousands of years, all without ever managing to get his attention. They did anything and everything to get God to notice them. Prayed to him, danced, built monuments, burned fires, slaughtered animals. People worshipped him dressed up in special clothes, sang songs, even wrote poems to him. And he didn't even know we existed. Talk about unrequited love. When it happened, I wasn't even trying to talk to God. I was using subatomic particles to try to send a message to my assistant, grad student named Asha Lahiri. And my message was nothing so fancy as a sonnet. 
No, all I was trying to communicate was a simple, Hello, Asha. Asha incidentally means hope in Sanskrit. I was hoping for tenure, and hoping for a Nobel Prize. We were getting close, I know we were. And right when I thought we were making a breakthrough, we started getting interference. After a few days of this, I began to suspect academic sabotage. How? I could not guess. None of the equipment, including my lab computer, was connected to the college network or the internet. I was no fool. I knew there were several other teams working on the problem, with the winners likely to claim a Nobel Prize, just like Richard Feynman. In the academic world, the higher the stakes, the lower the ethics. So every day for three weeks, I sent out, Hello, Asha, and searched for the source of the interference, all to no avail. While I was trying to unmask the saboteurs, God was trying to make sense of the things crawling around in his lasagna. Here is why God sounded like Richard Feynman. In the absence of any network connections to the outside world, the only voice recording God could find on my lab computer was a copy of the complete Feynman lectures on physics. Who knows what God would have sounded like had there been an internet connection. Maybe Elvis Presley, or Adolf Hitler, or Lady Gaga. Or maybe he would have meowed like a cat. My initial conversations with God were awkward, to say the least. I thought I was being pranked. It took the extinguishing of the star Bellatrix to convince me that I was actually talking to the creator. The star's disappearance got some press, but it was mostly of interest to astronomers and assorted geeks. Nobody suspected that God was involved. And with Asha having gone to India to care for her dying father, I was the only one who knew what had happened. I didn't bother to tell anyone that God had snuffed out Orion's shoulder. I was still hoping to get tenure. Confession time. I take full responsibility for the loss of Bellatrix. When God asked what he could do to convince me that he'd created the universe, I pulled up some astronomy software on the computer and told him to make the star disappear. That was me being clever again. My parents were atheists, so I had no training in what to say to God. Traditional prayers seemed overly formal, particularly with God sounding more like the guy who slices meats at the corner deli than an all-powerful creator. My impression of what people said to God involved asking him for favors. Can you get me a new car? Or fix it so I win the lottery? Or throw my neighbor into a fiery pit and slow-roast him in eternal agony like a withered hot dog at the convenience store. None of these seemed like a good idea, though I suppose I could have asked him for tenure. I found out subsequently that such a request would not have worked anyway. God may have created the universe, but he certainly wasn't in a position to micromanage it. He couldn't control the minutiae of our daily lives any more than we can do the same for mold growing on old lasagna. It turns out, as I learned over the coming weeks, that God had created our universe during one of his experimental periods. Bored with the precision clockwork of his other creations, he decided to toy with random elements. It was akin to a painter flinging paint at a canvas to see what art came of it. The splatters will occasionally take shapes that suggested semi-intelligible things if you looked at them at just the right angle. That 
was us, the splatters that resembled semi-intelligible things, if you looked at us from the right angle. While I fretted over what to say to God, Gabriella arrived with the day's mendocus. Deciding that she had vastly more experience in such matters, I explained to her that my experiments had put me in touch with God, and that I needed her advice on what to say. Thank him for everything. This seemed too broad to be useful, so I asked her for specific examples. What would you thank him for? Here is what Gabriella had to give thanks for. On the day that she and her twin sister celebrated their second birthday, her father was shot to death during the Caracazo, one of the periods of unrest that sees Venezuela from time to time. He had been eating breakfast when the military made a social call at his hovel in the hills east of Caracas. She was thankful that her mother had managed to get the twins safely out of the country. Later, when the twins were thirteen and their mother had been killed by stray gunfire between rival gangs in Merida, Mexico, the two debated whether or not to return to Venezuela. Gabriela's sister, Andrea, was of the opinion that they should. Hugo Chavez had just become president, and, like the prophets who predicted the end of the world, Andrea prophesied that Chavez would turn Venezuela into a socialist utopia. The sisters went their separate ways. Andrea died of starvation last year during the utopian food shortages. Gabriella was thankful that she did not die of starvation. What Gabriella was most thankful for was her son. She had received him as a present on her 13th birthday from an American college student on spring break in Cancun. This was shortly before Gabriella and her sister split up. So, while her sister headed south, she went north to secure her son's birthright in the United States. When she arrived, she went to a family planning clinic to ensure the health of her baby. They tried to convince her to have an abortion because, they assured her, the child would be doomed to a life of suffering. They were prophets, too. I didn't have anything quite as nifty as Gabriella to be thankful about. In hindsight, it was a mistake to let Gabriella in on my little secret. I should have followed my normal instinct to keep my mouth shut. Somewhere along the line, she mentioned what I was doing to her son, who then reported it to one of his other instructors. Yesterday morning, I arrived at the lab to find myself confronted by a group of five professors from various departments, all tenured. They were accompanied by a middle-aged man from IT, there to collect evidence of my misdeeds. Knowing that I would be unable to hide what I had been doing, I confessed that I had indeed been talking to God, but that it had been an accidental byproduct of legitimate scientific research. They looked at me like I was a religious nutcase. I summoned my ace in the hole. God. The disappearance of Bellatrix, I explained, was God's handiwork. Proof that he was indeed the creator. If that is so, said Laurent Koromoff, professor of anthropology, then have God prove it to us by knocking the moon out of its orbit. Before I could advise the professor to choose a less conspicuous proof, the moon went zipping off in the direction of Andromeda. For God, it was as simple as if he had been playing a game of paper football, the kind where you fold a piece of paper into a triangle and try to flick it with your finger through imaginary goalposts. Flick went the moon, 
it's up, it's good, and the crowd roars. Well, there was some roaring, but it wasn't quite as celebratory as one would expect from a football game. That is when the rest of the world knew something was up. Many thought it was a sign from God, even though we hadn't told anyone about it. The professors decided that this was the perfect opportunity to speak truth to power. They told God that he was a moral monster. They informed him of all the suffering he had caused. He was told about wars and starvation and inequality, of rape and slavery and genocide. The professor spent over two hours detailing his crimes against humanity. How could he have allowed such suffering to happen? If this were my dog said Professor Koromov. I would have euthanized it rather than let it suffer like that. This was probably not the most brilliant thing Koromov had ever said. In fact, I know it wasn't. I once heard him say that he had an itch on his nose. Comparatively, those words were genius. Gabriella was one of the people whom God had made to suffer. But she, like billions of other humans on Earth, didn't have the sense to be angry at God. Instead, had any of them had access to the machinery, they would have embarrassed themselves by thanking him for scraps of food shared between starving family members, or thanking him that some of their family members had survived the Civil War, and so on. They didn't know any better. It would never have occurred to them to blame God for people being bastards to each other. And it didn't really matter what they thought anyway because they didn't have access to lasers or photon counters or cryostats or any of that fancy stuff that I had in the lab. Unlike Gabriella, who merely experienced suffering, the professors knew all about it. She was ignorant, not even a high school graduate, whereas they had studied suffering in college and literature, conducted studies of it, written dissertations on the subject and published enough papers in their quest for tenure to be primary contributors of deforestation in Venezuela. They were experts on suffering, and God didn't have any good answers. He was up against the experts. He had never studied philosophy, or theology, or sociology, or anthropology, or ethnic and gender studies, or any of the things that would have prepared him for the onslaught. I went home last night knowing that I would soon lose control of the project. Bye-bye tenure. Bye-bye Nobel Prize. What I didn't know was that God would take what he had learned to heart and vow to correct his mistake. And since he could not fix what he had created, there was only one way to end the suffering. His message asked that we bear with the suffering just a little longer. He would return shortly with what he needed to clean up the mess. What does shortly mean to God? I have no idea. I attempted to contact God, but got no answer. That was when the fire alarm sounded. Despite the smoke beginning to seep into the lab, I decided to keep trying, but I was soon forcibly removed by a burly fireman. I insisted that I needed to talk to God in order to save the universe. The fireman took this as evidence that I had already inhaled too much smoke and not enough oxygen. When the fireman put me down on the grass in the quad, the students were already assembled to watch the blaze. The reason they had gathered so quickly was this. 
they had started the fire, or at least one of them had. They had been protesting the cost of tuition when one of them thought to advance their cause with the help of a Molotov cocktail. It was the sort of logic that only an idealist could understand. Gabriella was there on the lawn, too. I told her about the pending end of the universe, and she handed me a mandoka, saying that it was best not to go to the afterlife on an empty stomach. What good is this going to do me? I asked. It's better than nothing, she said, and left to find her son among the crowd. Thanks for listening to this podcast from thirdflatiron.com. Original music by Disco Volante. Sound production was by Andrew Cairns. 